0: Section 10 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. The Council of Trent, Part 3. Far greater, however, was the significance attached to the election of the Pope who speedily took the place of Marcellus, the pontificate of Paul IV, John Pietro Carafa, May 1555, to August, 1559, forms one of the most remarkable chapters in the history of the Counter-Reformation, which in him seemed under both its aspects to have secured the mastery of the Church. God's will alone, he was convinced, had placed him where he stood, for he was unconscious of having achieved anything through the favor of man. He was now seventy-nine years of age but he had never been more eager to devote himself to his chosen purpose, the establishment in the eyes of all peoples of a pure and spiritually active church, free from all impediments of corruptions and abuses, and purged of all poison of heresy and schism. Fully aware, though he had belonged to it himself, of the virtual failure of Paul III's commission of reform, Paul IV, who in his first bull had solemnly promised— an effectual reform of the Church and the Roman Curia, lost no time in instituting a congregation for the purpose. The commission, which consisted of three divisions, each of them composed jointly of cardinals, bishops, and doctors, wisely addressed itself in the first instance to the question of ecclesiastical appointments. The new pope likewise issued orders for the specific reform of monastic establishments— and his energy seemed to stand in striking contrast with the hesitations and delays of the recently suspended council. But once more, the seductions of temporal power overcame its holder. Carafa's residence in Spain, an enthusiasm for the religious ideals and methods prevalent there, had not eradicated the bitterly anti-Spanish feeling inborn in him as a Neapolitan, and Charles V, returning hatred for hatred, had done his utmost to offend the dignity and damage the interests of the cardinal. To these personal and national sentiments had been added the conviction that the emperor's dealings with the German Protestants had encouraged them to deal a deadly blow to the unity and strength of the church, and thus Paul IV allowed himself to be borne away by passion. His fiery temperament, fretted rather than soothed by old age, left him and those around him no peace. He maltreated the imperialist cardinals and the dependence of the emperor within his reach, and sought to instigate the French government to take up arms once more. Then nothing would content his patriotic fury but the liberation of Italy from the presence of the foreigner. Taking advantage of a difference with Philip of Spain concerning the revocation of certain bulls, concerning the Spanish Church and Inquisition, he directed a legal suit of excommunication to be instituted against Charles and Philip at Rome, 1556. Intent solely upon the satisfaction of his passions, he raised to the purple and soon entrusted with the main conduct of affairs his nephew, Carlo Carafa, a reckless soldier full of grievances against the emperor. His other nephews, when after a time they rallied to his anti-Spanish policy, he loaded with wealth and honors. In the war which ensued, but for the self-restraint of Alva, another sack of Rome might have been perpetuated by Spanish soldiery, and the quarrel pushed to an extreme issue. For the cardinal nephew was already negotiating alliances with infidels and heretics. But the Spanish occupation of Naples was not to be shaken, and the great Spanish victory of Saint Quentin, 10th of August, 1557, put an end to all further hopes of French aid. When Rome was once more threatened by a Spanish army, the Pope was universally execrated as the source of all these ills. Fortunately for Paul IV, The judicious moderation of Spain gave him an undeserved opportunity of retreat. But though appearances were saved in the peace respectfully offered by Alva, September 1557, the Spanish power stood fixed more firmly than ever in both the north and the south of Italy. The vehement political efforts of Paul IV and their failure could not in the end but damage the position of the Church in Italy. Elsewhere, in England, Spain and Rome were about this time supposed to be cooperating for the restoration of the Orthodox Church. The people at large acquiesced in Queen Mary's measures, the majority perhaps with a comforting suspicion that her religion was on the whole, from more than one point of view, the safer to prefer. At first, indeed, as Mary herself confessed to Pole the mind of her people remained so strongly prepossessed against the Pope that his supremacy was more difficult of acceptance to them than all the other tenets of her creed. But before long, many were cured of their hesitation by the bull which Pole as papal legate brought with him to England, confirming the possessors of monastery lands in their tenure. The impression created by the persecutions which ensued upon the formal reconciliation of England to Rome, 30th November, 1554, was probably neither so deep nor so widespread as has been frequently supposed. The real cause of Mary's unpopularity lay in the obstinacy with which she forced upon the nation first the Spanish marriage and then the Spanish policy. By the end of her reign the fruits of her infatuation were bitter as ashes in the mouths of Englishmen, so that when under Elizabeth the doings of the Spanish Inquisition formed the staple of news brought home in ships, and when sentiments of patriotic indignation gathered round the nucleus of positive Protestant sentiment, strengthened by the return of religious refugees, the memories of Smithfield, Oxford, and Canterbury added very notably to the blaze of popular resentment. Thus, public feeling— not less than the consistent counsels of her foremost statesmen steadied elizabeth's faltering hand and under her england became protestant not indeed as yielding to any great wave of national opinion but neither in mere passive obedience to a fresh series of statutes and ordinances the disciplinary measures recommended by pole more especially at the synod held by him toward the close of 1555 bear a striking resemblance to some of the decrees passed at Trent in the first period of the council. His very acceptance of Canterbury he made conditional on residence. Manifestly the submission of the English Church to the Pope in Poles' eyes formed only half of his task. Here, as elsewhere, the Church must by Reformation be brought nearer to his lofty ideal. But this it was not given to him to accomplish. As there is nothing to show that Paul IV objected to the proceedings of Pole in England, his recall, subsequently modified in form rather than in substance, might be regarded as part of the Pope's general policy of offence against Spain, were it not for the apprehensions of Carafa's ill will towards him, avowed by Pole before the elevation of the former to the papacy. In any case, Pole's death, eighteenth November. 1558, which followed that of Charles V within less than two months, seems to close a distinct page in the history of the Counter-Reformation. A politic assumption of confidence on the part of the Pope toward Queen Mary's successor might perhaps have delayed the re-emancipation of the Church of England, and thus also have retarded the complete victory of a more advanced type of Protestantism on the other side of the border." but Paul IV dreaded no step which Elizabeth could take so much as her marriage with Philip of Spain. It was the same hatred and fear of Habsburg which led him to drive the new emperor, Ferdinand I, halfway into the arms of the German Protestants, or at least into a system of government by compromise irreconcilable with the principles upheld at Rome. In the States of the Church, however, and within the range of his Italian influence, time was still left to Paul IV for the assertion of these principles. Nor is there anything more extraordinary in his life than the exertions of the last two years of his reign. At first, it seemed as if he would need some time to steady himself after the collapse of his political schemes, and as if he were unprepared to adopt Cardinal Pacheco's outspoken advice and let reform begin at home. But of a sudden, as if in another gust of passion, he made a clean sweep of the obstacles which his own perversity had placed in his path, banished his nephews, changed his whole administration, and then took up in terrible earnest the work of church reform. He would allow no appointment, savoring of corruption to any spiritual office, he would hear of no exception to the duty of residence. He completely abolished dispensations for marriages within prohibited degrees. Into the general management of the churches of the city, as well as into that of his own papal court, he introduced so strict a discipline that Rome was likened to a well-conducted monastery. But the agency which above all others he encouraged was that which his own advice had established in the center of the Catholic world, the Inquisition. From the Sacred College downwards, as in the case of Cardinal Marone, no sphere of life was exempted from its control, and his intolerance extended itself to the very Jews whose privileges in the Papal States he ruthlessly revoked. On his deathbed, he recommended the Inquisition with the Holy See itself to the pious cardinal surrounding him. It was afterwards observed that many reforms decreed in its third period by the Council of Trent were copied from the ordinances issued by Paul IV in this memorable biennium. But inasmuch as during his pontificate the Church of Rome had lost ground in almost every country of Europe except Italy and Spain, his death, 18th of August, 1559, naturally brought with it a widespread renewal of the demand for remedies more effective than those supplied by his feverish activity and by the operations of his favorite institution. Personally, Pius IV, 1559 to 1566, was regarded and probably chosen as an opponent of the late Pope. His family history inclined him to the imperial interest And he was understood to favor concessions to Germany with a view of bringing her stray sheep back into the fold. He possessed, with a genial disposition, a reasonable mind, and though an excellent canon lawyer, was far too little of a theologian to love dwelling in extremes of dogma. He showed no disposition to follow his predecessor in prohibiting the sale of spiritual dignities, benefices, and favors of all kinds, but in general, He furthered rather than arrested the religious reaction. Above all, the Inquisition, though he is not known to have done anything to intensify its rigor or augment its authority, went on as before. For himself, he avoided the nepotism of which, in the pursuit of his political ends, Paul IV had made himself guilty. In contrast with the Carafa nephews, on whom he allowed a terrible vengeance to descend, Carlo Borromeo, the nephew of Pius IV, served the Holy See in a spirit of unselfish devotion and began those efforts on behalf of religion which, in the end, obtained for him a place among the saints of the Church, a position not reached by many popes' nephews. With the aid of this influence, Pius IV came to perceive that the future both of the Church and of the papacy depended on the spirit of confidence and cohesion Which could be infused into the former, nor had he, from the very outset of his pontificate, ever doubted the expediency of reassembling the council at Trent. The Emperor Ferdinand and the French government, who still persisted in treating the reunion of the church as the primary object of the council, at first strongly urged the substitution for Trent of a genuine German or French town where the German bishops, and perhaps even the Protestants, would feel no scruple about attending. But a totally free and new council of this description lay outside the horizon of the papacy, and Pius IV might have let fall the plan altogether, but for the fear of the entire separation in that event of the Gallican Church from Rome. In France, Protestantism had made considerable strides during the reign of Henry II, Second. 1547 to 1559, more especially of late under the cover of the war with Spain, although that war advanced the influence of the Guises, represented in the Church by the Cardinal of Lorraine. The introduction of the Inquisition, 1557, had remained a futile attempt, and though after the peace of Cato Cambresi, Henry II actually proposed to Philip a joint attack upon Geneva, Protestantism flourished, especially in the south and west of the monarchy, in spite of persecution. And about six weeks before the death of Henry II, the first National Synod of Protestants was held at Paris in May of 1559. Under Francis II, the Guise influence became paramount. The persecution of the Protestants continued and was expedited by the Edict of Romorantin, May 1560. But though the suppression just before this of the so-called Conspiracy of Amboise had temporarily added to the power of the Guises, it had also made the Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, resolve not to let the power of the state pass wholly out of her hands. Hence the appointment of the large-hearted Lopital as Chancellor and the Assembly of Notables at Fontainebleau, August where the grievances against Rome found full expression, and where arrangements were made for a meeting of the States-General and a National Council of the French Church. This resolution determined Pius IV to lose no further time. He succeeded in overcoming the objections of both Ferdinand and the French government to Trent, and adjourned the more difficult question as to whether the new assembly should or should not be regarded as a mere continuation of the former— which France had never acknowledged. On the 29th of November, 1560, he issued a bull summoning all the prelates and princes of Christendom to Trent for the following Easter. The invitation included both Eastern schismatics and Western heretics, Elizabeth of England among the rest, but neither she nor the German Protestant princes assembled at Naumburg nor the kings of the Scandinavian North would so much as receive the papal summons. In France, the death of Francis II, 5th of December, 1560, further depressed the Guise influence, and Catherine entered into negotiations with the Pope with a view to concessions such as would satisfy the Huguenots. while approved by the French bishops. She considerably raised her demands not long before the Colloquy of Poissy, September 1561, which, however notwithstanding its array of ecclesiastical notabilities on both sides, came to nothing, owing in part to the active intrigues of the papal nuncio. But the Edict of January 1562, which followed, long remained a sort of standard of fair concessions to the Huguenot. End of Section 10.